We're celebrating the coming kingdom of God during the Feast of Tabernacles, and God has given us the gift of these annual festivals, and it is a revelation to all of us. And we are here in a millennial atmosphere, so we're really enjoying it, and particularly the fellowship with one another, uh, thinking of fellowshipping one another during the whole millennium. We'll have big God's family. We'll have time that won't be stressful. We'll have time that will be, uh, time is, will be in another dimension. We'll be in two dimensions. We'll be in the dimension of God's spiritual kingdom and as spiritual leaders manifesting ourselves as teachers, uh, kings, priests, and judges, uh, human beings who have the kingdom of God, the family of God, the royal family of God, spirit beings ruling over and serving physical human beings. Billions, probably about four billion people, as I mentioned in the sermon uh, last Sabbath. So we are celebrating. The first uh, day of the seventh month we all observed was the Feast of Trumpets. We know that that was the Revelation 11:15 announcement that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And of the end of His kingdom there is no end. So we celebrated that announcement, and that announcement ended man's 6,000 years of experimenting with all kinds of business, science, education, religion, entertainment. That announcement begins the rulership of Christ over everything, but he must put all enemies under his feet, which is a transition time. And I gave that sermon on the weekly Sabbath here. We had 54 people And the title of the sermon I gave Sabbath was Millennial Victories. Uh, Some of you said you wanted to see that sermon, but it is a version of that sermon is available uh, called Establishing the Kingdom. And I'll tell you, I'll just kind of demonstrate if you have, uh, if you have Google or Internet access, I'll just do a little experiment here. Living Church of God Sermons. Establishing the Kingdom. Oh, it's still listening. I got it within three seconds uh, during Mr. Elliott's announcements. But uh, you'll get four or five listings. Okay, here it comes. Uh, first on the list, sometimes it's a fourth or fifth on the list. Uh, But it's first on the list here, Feast of Tabernacles 2018, Establishing the Kingdom, Living Church of God. If you know the title of a sermon, any sermon, they're loaded up on YouTube. And you just say, Living Church of God Sermon, and say the title, Establishing the Kingdom, and within three seconds, you get the sermon on your cell phone. It's, It's amazing technology and what... God's church has available to you is hundreds of sermons, Bible studies, and uh, telecasts, and articles, just, just a treasure trove of truth uh, that God has available for us. So we're thankful for that. Well, the 11, Revelation 11.15 announcement, of course, the resurrection takes place. Uh, the marriage of the Lamb takes place. Uh, Revelation 19, the wife has made herself ready. Uh, Revelation 19, verse 7. And then the Day of Atonement. We have the tenth day of the seventh month. Satan and his demons are put away. And the announcement of the second exodus takes place when the shofar horn blows on the tenth day 
of the seventh month, the great second Exodus. And you can learn about that in the sermon I just mentioned, accessing, establishing the kingdom. Then on the 15th of the seventh month, the Feast of Tabernacles begins, and you probably saw the full moon last night, beautiful, beautiful evening, the 1,000 year of Christ on earth. Let's turn to Exodus, the 23rd chapter. I know that our Holy Day offering uh, messages always say Deuteronomy 16, 16, but Exodus 23 is another option for the Holy Day offerings in um, Exodus 23. So let's turn to uh, verse 14. Uh, Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. The same message of Deuteronomy 16, 16, men, giving holy day offerings. You can give Exodus 23, verse 15. None shall appear before me empty-handed. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors, and the feast of ingathering. So the Feast of Tabernacles has another name, another title, the Feast of Ingathering. And we will be gathering billions of people into God's kingdom and teaching them a new way of life. And then, of course, uh, he tells us, First of first fruits, verse 19, of your land you shall bring into the house of the eternal your God, and so forth. So we look forward to the, those, the thir- three pilgrimage uh, ceremonies, the three pilgrimage feasts they were called. They went up during the spring the Passover, Pentecost, and in the Feast of Tabernacles. They went up to Jerusalem. They were called the Pilgrimage Feast. In Leviticus 23, verse 41, I won't turn there, but he says, You shall celebrate, celebrate the Feast of the Lord for seven days in the seventh month. And so we realize that we are here observing, or the other translation, we are celebrating. And as we uh, may have read in Deuteronomy 16 and, and verse 15, just before uh, verse 16, you shall celebrate and surely rejoice. So we are told to rejoice during the feast, and I'm, I am. I don't know about you, but I'm rejoicing during the feast, uh, even though I have to be wheeled around in a wheelchair. But thankfully, God has given us the, the wisdom, the blessings, and the understanding of the Feast of Tabernacles. So one of the reasons we're here is to remember the very purpose of life, that God has called us to be a part of His family. Stephen Hawking is a famous astrophysicist, and in his book, A Theory of Everything, he stated, quote, If we can find the answer to the purpose of this universe, we will have achieved the ultimate in human reasoning and understand the mind of God. That's from The Theory of Everything by Stephen Hawking, page uh, 136. I covered that in the telecast, uh, Why the Universe and Our Mysterious Universe. So Stephen Hawking is saying, one is a brilliant individual. If we can find the answer to the purpose of the universe... We will have achieved the ultimate in human reasoning and understand the mind of God. That's through revelation, not through human reasoning. 
And as I said in the telecast, what is the purpose of the universe? One way of stating it, as I said on that telecast, as we prepare for the future, the universe exists as the environment for humans to learn about the creator of the universe and to prepare for their awesome destiny. When you look at the universe, Revelation 1, Romans 1, verse 20 tells you that they are without excuse. That God has revealed even His eternal Godhead, the very family of God, the very creation of God. And so you might turn to, uh, well, we'll wait on that. You'll realize the very purpose that God has called us. Turn to Exodus, the 19th chapter. Exodus 19, and again we find what our calling is as we keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Our calling is to teach as kings, priests, and judges during the millennium billions of people. That's why government is so needed. But what is the very purpose of the universe? What is the very purpose of life? Uh, God has revealed that to us, and we're, we're so thankful for that. So, in Exodus, the 19th chapter, Exodus 19, starting with verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Now, that was given to the physical nation of, of Israel. But that same message applies to spiritual Israel. And you may not have thought of yourself as being a special treasure. Uh, you might check my sermon on true treasures, that we, God calls us His treasure. And even in uh, uh, Malachi, he mentions that uh, we are special as well. He said, Therefore, you shall indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. As I mentioned in the uh, weekly Sabbath there just a couple of days ago, uh, that God rules supreme. He says in Psalm 24, The earth is the Lord's and the inhabitants thereof. He owns all the beasts and cattle. We haven't sang that in the, in the hymn already uh, this, this morning. So he said, all the earth is mine. Well, not just only the earth, but of course the universe is his. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So that was their calling, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They failed in that calling. For a while, under Solomon, it was more of a, let's say, a sample of the kingdom of God, where God's commandments and statutes and judgments were being held. And under David, of course, the regular worship services were done according to God's laws and, and according to the statutes and judgments into the Levitical priesthood. It was done beautifully. And so there have been times when, yes, Israel did act as an example and as a light to the world. And we are spiritual Israel. We've replaced physical Israel as that example. And God calls us His treasure, and we're thankful for that. But we have a calling to become kings, priests, and judges. He said, I won't turn there, but 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 2, Do you not know that you will 
judge the world. So the Corinthians were having a problem judging among themselves. And, of course, God said back in 1 Corinthians 11.31, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But not only are we going to be kings and priests, but we're going to be judges. And he said, do you not know that we will judge the world? And in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, probably will be read a couple times during the feast, he calls us a royal priesthood. So we are a royal priesthood. That means kings and priests. And priests, of course, are teachers. They're going to teach the law of God, the way of love, the way of God. And we heard in the offertory that we're saviors. We're liberators as well. We're going to liberate the world from oppression. And we've given them the way of freedom, the way of true life. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. In John 8 and verse 32. So we are called now as kings and priests, and we are, as Dr. Meredith would say, we are kings and priests in training. And so the title of the sermon today is The Characteristic of Kings. We are in training to be kings, priests, and judges, but I'll emphasize in this sermon the characteristic of kings. Well, maybe some of the women will have problems. They not think of themselves as kings. Well, think of yourself as a queen. Queen Elizabeth observed her sapphire jubilee. That was... Uh, February 6th, 2017, two years ago, she celebrated her 65th anniversary as a reigning queen of England. And uh, just, of course, 65, now it's, uh, she's up to 67 years as the reigning monarch of Great Britain, or what was great, now uh, not so great Great <laughs> Britain. Um, but uh, just two days ago, October 12th, uh, was my 65th uh, high school reunion. And I missed that. I was president of the class and co-captain of the football team, but I told them that I was unable to attend the um, high school reunion, my 65th high school reunion, because I was going to be speaking to a group in Cathedral City, California. So uh, I told them that God would bless their high, my high school reunion back in Meriden, Connecticut. But October 12th, last Sabbath, was also the 50th anniversary, wedding anniversary of Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Gerald Weston. So uh, if you get to see them, you can uh, congratulate them on their 50th uh, wedding anniversary. So God has called us to be kings and priests. And so today we thank God for that calling. But we have to prepare, of course, and have that vision. Mr. Brian Pomachter in the sermonette last Sabbath uh, gave a sermonette called Using Vision to Invest in the Kingdom. And so we have to have vision. And, of course, the Feast of Tabernacles gives us that vision of tomorrow's world. The Apostle Peter uh, also had a vision of the coming kingdom. My turn there to Matthew, the 17th chapter. Matthew 17. So the first characteristic of a godly king is that godly kings in training have vision. Godly kings in training have vision. Characteristic number one. And here, the Apostle Peter had a real vision, 
And, of course, James, Peter, and John, uh, as he says here, uh, he was going to show them the kingdom had come. Chapter 16 of Matthew, verse 28. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So we want that vision. We want to visualize what the kingdom is like. And Peter had this, uh, James and John had that vision. After six days, chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And, of course, later on he said, as they came down from the mountain, verse 9, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. So this was a vision. But what was the vision of? The kingdom of God is showing a portion of that vision of Christ glorified and two major rulers in the kingdom, Moses and Elijah. So where will they be in the hierarchy of the kingdom of God? Well, we'll talk about that in a later. And, of course, the two witnesses, Revelation 11, are a type of Moses and Elijah. They make the water become blood, call down fire from heaven, cause drought. They perform the same miracles as Moses and Elijah. And this is all very well accepted among the biblical scholars that the two witnesses are a type of Moses and Elijah. And so we look forward to the kingdom of God, and I'm sure that some of you have thought about talking to various patriarchs and the luminaries of the Bible. Maybe you'd like to talk to King David and ask him occasion, or or Joseph from uh, the son of Jacob. You want to ask him how he uh, performed in, in Egypt and how they saved the the wheat for those seven years, or saved all the saved the world, as we heard the sermon. Heck, uh, we sent you to save the world. So we thank God for the vision that He's giving us. But who else will be in the kingdom as we visualize the kingdom? Turn to Romans, the fourth chapter. Moses and Elijah are shown as being in the kingdom. Turn to Romans, the fourth chapter. Who else is going to be in the kingdom? Yeah. Romans, the fourth chapter, and verse 13, talking about Abraham. Romans 4:13, For the promise that he would be what? Heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For those who are of the law are heirs. Faith is made void and the promise of no effect, because the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace or God's favor, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Oh, he's a, we use the term father of the faithful. That term exhibits 
does not exactly appear in the Bible, but he is the father of us all and the example of faith. Abraham was a type of God the Father in sacrifices against son Isaac in Genesis, the 22nd chapter. So who is going to be right at the top of God's kingdom under God the Father and Jesus Christ? Now, Mr. Armstrong had that whole booklet, The Wonderful World Tomorrow, what it would be like. Abraham is heir of the world. So under Jesus Christ would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then who would be under them? Well, you have Moses and Elijah that were shown as the top rulers in God's kingdom. What would be their responsibilities? You know, Moses, of course, was over the rulership of and governance of three to four million people. Not just three to four million people, but three to four million hard-headed people. And he had to learn government. And so it appears, as Mr. Armstrong would say in that booklet, that, that Moses would be over all the world governments. And who would be under him? King David. Of course, we've read that in uh, last Sabbath in Ezekiel 37. That David will be king over all the nation of Israel, and Judah and Israel become one nation, and David, their king, will be over them. And so you have the rulership over the nations of Israel. And who are going to be over the tribes of Israel? Well, Jesus said in Matthew, 29, Matthew 19, verses 20 through 30, that the disciples would be over 12 thrones ruling the tribes of Israel. So you just wonder who's going to be ruling over Manasseh, or who's going to be ruling over Ephraim, or who's going to be ruling over Issachar or Zebulon. Uh, it be very interesting in the kingdom. But David will be over those 12 apostles, ruling over 12 physical tribes of Israel. So you have the, the government section under Moses with David over the Israelite teams. Who would be over the... Gentile kingdoms. Well, most likely, Daniel himself was in the governments of Gentile kingdoms. And he was actually the ruler, the second ruler or third ruler in Babylon. He actually ruled a Gentile empire. So, Abraham, I'm sorry, Daniel's had that responsibility. And you think, well, who would be with him? Well, who was apostle to the Gentiles? Well, the apostle Paul. These are that, you know, you can think about what are these responsibilities in the kingdom. We have to visualize the kingdom and how wonderful it will be. What about Elijah? Elijah would be over the educational aspects and religious aspects. There were three schools of the prophets that Elijah established. We made that comparison to Ambassador College and its three campuses years ago. But it was a Bethel, Jericho, and Gilgal, I believe, were the three cities <clears throat> that had the schools of the prophets. And there were married students uh, in those schools of the prophets. So it appears that maybe Elijah certainly would be over the religious aspect. When he had the battle with the prophets of Baal, he said, you know, who is God? Who is the Lord? And so... He, Elijah, was one who turned the hearts of the people to the true God 
of creation. And that's part of our responsibility. We're witnessing the true God to all of the nations as God opens the doors for us to do that. So Elijah was in charge, would be in charge of the religious and educational aspects. And then we can all speculate, well, who's going to be under Elijah in the educational aspects? Well, maybe Mr. Armstrong would think about being part of the educational institutions for tomorrow's world that taught the way of true education to recapture true values, true values based on the Word of God, which many of the educational systems of this world do not understand and don't observe. So we have a vision of tomorrow's world. We'll turn to Luke, the 19th chapter, Luke 19. So what a wonderful government God is going to bring upon earth. That is the solution to all the world's problems, is the government of God, the family of God. Mr. Armstrong used to say, well, the kingdom of God is, number one, the government of God, and secondarily, the family of God. Then he said, well, it could also be, number one, the kingdom of God is the family of God, and secondarily, the government of God. So that's the solution to the world's problems. Luke, the 19th chapter. What else is going to happen in the kingdom? Luke 19, starting with uh, verse 11. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because it was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country and to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And then he called the ten of his servants and delivered to them ten minas and said to them, Do business till I come. And notice the reward of the, those who were given the minas. Verse 16, Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to them, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in very little. And this has been encouraging to me. Because you were faithful in very little, have authority over ten cities. So that's where we are as part of our responsibilities in growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ to have the gift of discipline, which is a sermon I recently gave and will be sent out, I hope, in the next month or two. I hope you'll listen to that sermon, The Gift of Discipline. It has to do with overcoming. The Apostle Paul said he disciplined his body and keep it under subjection, lest after he has preached he would become a castaway. But we all have to be overcomers. We have to fight the good fight of faith. Uh, we have to discipline ourselves and have the gift, the spiritual gift of self-control. And the days of unleavened bread teach us that lesson, that we have to put out the leaven of malice and wickedness and grow in the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, replacing human nature with God's divine nature. And so God will help us to do that if we are faithful over very little. And so he said, have authority over ten cities. So some people are going to be over ten cities. You think of, well, maybe I'm a woman. I don't know if I'll be over ten cities. Well, you think, oh, you got Queen Elizabeth, you had Indira. Some of the world leaders that were women... Indira Gandhi of India, uh, even today, uh, Angela Merkel in Germany. You had uh, uh, over Israel, 
Maya Golda Meir, uh, Prime Minister of Israel, that uh, Mr. Armstrong met met personally, and so uh, women can really be leaders and be servants in their leadership. Uh, God knows what you're going to be doing, but as you're thinking about kings and priests, the characteristics you're going to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We're going to be kings, priests, and judges with God. But a godly kings in training have vision, number one. Number two, godly kings care for their subjects. Turn to James, the fifth chapter. Godly kings care for their subjects. James 5 and verse 16. James 5, 16. You know this one. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray for one another. I have a, a prayer list that's about 150 names on it, and I look at it occasionally, uh, but I probably, in my own mind, pray for the same 100 people uh, just without a list, without a written list. Just in my mind, I just keep praying for these people uh, every night and every day. Uh, the Apostle Paul prayed for, at the end of Romans, the 16th chapter. He says, I make mention of you in my prayers. Mention. Didn't spend a lot of time, but he mentions about 35 names just in the last chapter of the book of Romans. He, he must have been praying for them by name. He understood that. So we pray for one another, that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And then he shows, well, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He had the same human nature. He fled in timidity and fear when Jezebel said he was going to, she was going to capture him. And yet he was very courageous on the other hand in the battle of the prophets of Baal. And the prophet prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So James is showing us that we are just as human as Elijah, or Elijah is just as human as we are, and God answered his prayers dramatically. And God can answer your prayers dramatically. We pray for one another. We care for one another. So priests are also teachers, and we are going to be teaching our subjects when we care for them as well as whatever responsibilities we may have. Uh, but we know that we're all teachers. And we, during the feast, by the way, you're going to hear some of these scriptures repeated two or three times. And, and uh, uh, someone say, oh, Mr. Ames, you took my sermon. No, I didn't take your sermon. I just read the same scriptures. You're going to read two or three times over again. So um, that it's uh, the same scriptures that we all share with one another. But turn to Isaiah uh, the 30th chapter, because this is going to be read probably one or two more times uh, during the feast. Isaiah, the 30th chapter. And uh, Isaiah 30. The T is kind of laying to see, and it's been up here for quite a while, but... Uh, if uh, 
someone wants me to get a warm, warm cup of tea, that might be nice. Anyway, uh, on Isaiah 30, you're all familiar with this. Every feast we read that, verse 19. Isaiah 30, verse 19. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears, he will answer you. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore. But your eyes shall see your teachers. We will be the teachers. One of the jobs of a priest is to teach, to teach God's way of life, to teach God's law. And the kingdom of God, the educational system of God, will be spirit beings teaching, ruling over physical human beings. But we will be able to manifest ourselves physically the same way Jesus did after his resurrection. And remember, he had gone to the throne of God in heaven, came back to the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, and it says he ate fish when he came back with them at the Sea of Galilee. He manifested himself as a physical human being with his disciples after he'd been resurrected from the dead. So we will be able to manifest ourselves as physical human beings, of course, without blood. We will have no blood at that time. We'll be able to manifest ourselves, but the students will see their teachers. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it whenever you turn to the right hand or when you turn to the left. So we look forward to that time that we, caring for those whom we rule, are going to teach them the very way of life. Mr. Gene Hilgenberg was a professor at Crowder uh, College in uh, Neosho, Missouri, for many years, a professor in agriculture. He wrote an article in the Living Church News some years ago, 12 Traits of Great Teachers. That's the Living Church News, November, December 2011. 12 Traits of Great Teachers. All of us need to be and become great teachers. You don't need to write them down, but I'll just mention number one, love to teach. Said in uh, Matthew 10.8, freely you have received, freely give. Now, you don't want to teach people who don't want to be taught. That is in today's milieu, today's uh, way of life. You don't want to try to cram your religion down someone else's throat, as they say. But you need to learn to give what you know and to help others. Love to teach. Number two, our good communicators. Now, we in an editorial service, I'm director of an editorial uh, department, an editorial director, uh, we have to make sure that our language, our English, our communication is, is, is correct, is accurate, is the best we can. Uh, we have uh, proofreaders that go over all of our, our uh, magazines, Tomorrow's World, Living Church News, the booklets, and, and even the co-worker letters and uh, member letters that are sent out. We review everything. We still make mistakes. And sometimes uh, church bulletins in the, in the world make mistakes. We make mistakes, but not, very, not as many as this. But here's some illustration of some church, um, uh, church bulletin bloopers. Uh, if you're going to be a good uh, communicator, uh, you need to learn not to do it this way. 
This is one of the church bulletin's bloopers. At the evening service tonight, the sermon topic will be, What is Hell? Come early and listen to our choir practice. (laughs) So you don't want to communicate that way. Another church bulletin blooper. The pastor will preach the farewell message, after which the choir will sing, Break forth into joy. (laughs) Irving Benson and Jesse Carter were married on October 24th in the church. So ends a friendship that began in their school days. (laughs) Charlene Mason sang, I will not pass this way again giving obvious pleasure to the congregation. (laughs) Mr. Elliott mentioned that we're going to have an evening of hospitality. The church will host an evening of fine dining, superb entertainment, and gracious hostility. For those of you who have children and don't know it, we have a nursery downstairs. (laughs) Just a couple more. Ladies, don't forget the rummage sale. It's a chance to get rid of those things not worth keeping around the house. Don't forget your husbands. (laughs) Now, one last one. Low self-esteem support group will meet Thursday at 7 to 8.30 p.m. Please use the back door. <laughs> so good teachers are good communicators. You, you don't communicate the way that these church bulletin bloopers uh, communicate. Mr. Hilgenberg goes on, number three, as a... Teacher quality must be admirable, that is, high moral standards. Four, use positive reinforcement, that is, your, your encouraging. Five, are fair and just. Six, are leaders. Seven, are committed. Eight, have understanding. Nine, have compassion and caring. Number ten, have confidence. Great teachers are confident that they know how to teach and in what they are teaching. Number 11, are prepared. Number 12, are professional. That's by Gene Hodberg, uh, Gene Hilgenberg's article, 12 Traits, uh, Traits of Great Teachers. So we saw in Isaiah, the 30th chapter, that God's people will see their teachers and hear a word saying, this is the way, walk in it. We are going to have a, a new educational system for tomorrow's world, and people, People will respect their teachers. And parents or some of you already have homeschooling. You're already uh, teaching your children. And it will be a new way of of teaching that is based on the Word of God, based on the reality of God as a creator and the lawgiver and and the great educator. Christ is the great teacher. God the Father is the great educator. So as teachers... What else will we do? We will also intercede for others. That's what a priest does. Remember when the plague brought out at the 
the time when the the people lusted after the quail and so forth, and the plague had gone out. And Moses told Aaron, take a censer and go between the plague and the people. And the plague was stopped. And, of course, he tells us in First Timothy, the second chapter, to pray for kings, for magistrates, for those who are in authority, to give intercessions and prayers that we may lead a life of peace and orderliness, of peace and honesty. So we are supposed to be praying as intercessors even now. That's what a priest did, interceded for others. And Aaron did that, and of course Moses himself interceded for the nation of Israel. God said, Moses, stay aside, and I'll make of you a great nation for these people that you have brought out of Egypt. And Moses said, Lord... You are the ones that brought these people out of Egypt, not me. And what will the nation say that you brought them out to the desert to, to die? Here's this rebellious people, and yet Moses interceded for them. So we need to intercede for others, and I know it's not popular. Don't think about praying for President Trump, praying for Queen Elizabeth, uh, praying for... Um, Angela Merkel in Germany, praying for leaders that we may lead a peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, is what the Apostle Paul taught, taught us in 1 Timothy 2. Get prayers and intercessions for magistrates and those who are in authority. And we thank God because there are those attacks. There was the Yom Kippur attack in eastern Germany, in Hall, Germany, at a synagogue. And then, of course, is the attacks and terrorist attacks around the world. We need to pray for God's protection and His safety and pray for solid government of law and order that we can lead peaceable lives. So we intercede for others. And remember, of course, the classic intercession. I won't turn there, but in Genesis, the 18th chapter, where Abraham interceded for the city of Sodom. And he negotiated with God, uh, with the one who became Jesus Christ, the Eternal, the one that was there in the Old Testament. If there are ten, there are fifty people, will you not save the righteous with the unjust? And Abraham negotiated with the Lord and got him down to ten. Yes, if there are, there are ten people, I will save Sodom. I won't intervene. Of course, his nephew Lot and his family was there, and God sent the two angels to get his family out of there. But, of course, what did uh, Lot's wife uh, look back? And that's a classic lesson for all of us. Don't look back. Don't yearn for the the physical and the, the carnal ways of this world, but look forward to the coming kingdom of God. So Abraham was an intercessor. Thank you, kind sir. Thank you very much. That's not Laodicea. That's very good. So, so pray you, and what does it say in Genesis? I'm sorry. Matthew, the fifth chapter. Pray for your enemies. How many of you, when's the last time you prayed for an enemy? You know, Christ prayed for us when we were enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. Hebrews 7, verse 25.
What an awesome, great high priest we have. And so we are going to be priests who intercede and teach. The second godly characteristic is godly kings care for their subjects. Number three, godly kings exercise godly judgment. I already mentioned 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 2, that know you not, you shall judge the world. We had uh, sermon number 762, uh, Judges in Training, and sermon number 832, Righteous Judgment, uh, by Dr. Meredith, who was a a must-play sermon on judgment. Let's turn to... uh, 1 Corinthians 11th chapter, even though I referred to this, I think it's good if we read it in our own Bible as we prepare to have godly judgment and learn godly judgment. We're in training to become kings, priests, and judges. And all the kings had to judge, of course, as Solomon, when he prayed for not riches, but prayed for wise judgment to rule his people. And God gave him that wise judgment. 1 Corinthians 11 and uh, verse 31 is a context, of course, the, the days of unleavened bread. And one I hope you have marked in your Bible. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 31. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. And so, you know, it's it's the kind of individual who who blames everyone else except himself. Oh, uh, the uh, policeman stopped me for going 90 miles an hour and, you know, in a 55 mile on his own. Oh, that policeman, he shouldn't have done that. No, he's judging the policeman rather than judging himself. You need to judge yourself and see, that's why we examine ourselves. For the days of unleavened bread and the Passover. And the Jews supposedly are doing that from the Feast of Trumpets, the ten days of awe until the Day of Atonement of judging themselves, examining themselves for those ten days. And so we need to always make sure that we are judging righteous judgment and judging ourselves as a part of our training. Godly kings exercise godly judgment. And, of course, what are those judgments based upon? The Ten Commandments. 1 Corinthians, uh, Psalm 119, verse 97, All thy, How love I thy law, it is my meditation all the day, King David said. Psalm 111, verse 10, The beginning of, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of wisdom. You know, God, a good understanding, have all they who do His commandments. That's Psalm 111, verse 10. The basis for good judgment is God's Ten Commandments. And so we need to, again, meditate on God's law. And Matthew 7, verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged, for by what measure you judge, you shall be judged. So whenever you point a finger, you know, you have to be careful. you got three fingers pointing it back at you and one up at God. you got to be careful when you're trying to help someone. We are to help someone. And Matthew 18:15 tells you to help your brother if he's offended you. But we have to be careful in how we do that and understand that we do not condemn others. When it says judge not, and basically the meaning is in the Moffat, 
uh, condemn not that you be not condemned. We need to continue to evaluate what is right and what is wrong and understand, yes, uh, we look at world news, we look at the actions of governments, the actions of statesmen, the actions of, of scientists, of, uh, of businessmen, and we need to make sure that we are not judging because we don't have all the facts, but at the same time as something blatantly is transgressing God's law. As he says, some of those things are an abominations. Uh, we make a righteous judgment because that's what God says. We understand the laws of God. So we need to have that wisdom that begins with the fear of the Lord. You know, I won't turn there, but you know, memorization verses of Proverbs 1-7 and Proverbs 9-10. Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9.10 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And uh, we read the Scriptures in Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 16 uh, that we're to learn the fear of the Eternal during the Feast of Tabernacles. And that fear is an awe, and it's accepting the reality the greatest reality that God controls and rules the universe. The Lord reigns. And we have even a hymn that we sing, The Lord Reigns, I believe it's along that line. So God rules everything. You know, he's allowed Satan to do the ruler of this world. And he and God still intervenes in certain circumstances in all world history, as we see from the whole history of, or they call it salvation history when you look at the Old Testament, and even looking at modern history of how God has intervened in world affairs. Dr. Meredith had a booklet by that title, How God Intervenes in World Affairs. We finally changed that title to Fulfill Prophecy. So we need to have wisdom. We need to have judgment as we learn to exercise godly judgment. I enjoy poetry, and one of uh, my favorite poets is Edgar Guest, and uh, he's, uh has a poem po- titled Wisdom. This is wisdom, maids and men, knowing what to say and when. Speech is common, thought is rare. Wise men choose their words with care. Artists with the master touch never use one phrase too much. Jesus preaching on the mount made his every sentence count. Lincoln's Gettysburg address needs not one word more or less. This is wisdom, maids and men, knowing what to say and when. <laughs> I hope, I hope you pray to set a guard at your mouth. I don't have that reference, but it's in the psalm. Uh, Lord, set a guard at my mouth. You know, you want to make sure. And I pray, even when I pray about giving a sermon, what not to say. (laughs) Help me what to say, but help me what not to say. So it takes wisdom and discretion. And there's one more scripture on this section on godly kings exercising godly judgment. Turn to Exodus, the 18th chapter. Exodus 18. This is in the context of Moses judging the people. Exodus, uh, the 18th chapter, and uh, verse 21. 
So remember, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, gave saw Moses spending all his time uh, counseling all of the people. And Jethro gave him wise government about having captains of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. In fact, that was uh, 1972 in Big Sandy, Texas, at the Feast of Tabernacles. We had 15,000 people. If any of you, how many of you actually been to a Feast of Tabernacles in Big Sandy, Texas? Let me see your hands. Good. Only about uh, 20.3% of you, so you missed out quite a bit. But there was a Piney Woods. There was a campgrounds. And then Les McCullough, who was Deputy Chancellor, established another campground across the other side of Lake Loma. In that year, 1972, we had 15,000 people attend the feast in Big Sandy. 9,000 were camping on the grounds. And Dale Scherter, my friend, was uh, coordinating the campgrounds. And he'd set captains of thousands, captains of hundreds, captains of fifties, captains of tens. And it worked out fine. A lot of human nature, and there's a lot of problems, but the governmental structure helped out. And that's what the wisdom of Jethro telling Moses, this is how you operate a government. And you need to have this wisdom. But what were the qualifications of those who were chosen to be leaders? Verse 21 of Exodus 18. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God. You know, Dr. Meredith would often say that those many of the evangelists' headquarters that left and apostatized never were conquered by God, didn't have the fear of God. And yet, all of us here understand that the fear of God is that greatest reality of all, of knowing that He's the Creator, the Lawgiver, the Lifegiver, the Sustainer, the Designer, the One who fulfills prophecy, the One who answers prayers, the One who intervenes in our lives, and that Christ is our active, living, loving Savior and Great High Priest, the Savior of the world. We have that reality. And so we have that awesome respect and awe of who and what God is. You shall select from all people able men. Able? Yes, you're learning. Such as fear God, men of truth. Yes, men and women of truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And you shall obey the truth. We rejoice in the truth, as it says in 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter as well. Hating covetousness and placing such over them to be rulers, to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. And then the matter that was more serious would be brought to, to Moses. So number three. Godly kings exercise godly judgment. Number four, godly kings grow in godly character. Go to Second uh, Peter 3.18, the memorization verse. You really don't need to turn to it, but I might as well do it anyway. Second Peter 3 and verse 18. But grow... In the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to Him be the glory both now and forever. The contemporary English version has it, Let the wonderful kindness 
and the understanding that come from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ help you to keep on growing. Praise Jesus now and forever. So the days of unleavened bread teach us the way of overcoming. In fact, that's a sermon number 812, 812, the way of overcoming. So we need to seek God's righteousness. We need to choose God's righteousness. And that's a matter of choice. So we grow in godly character by the hundreds and maybe sometimes thousands of choices we make every day. I forget what sermon was I gave. I might have been on meditation, the sermon on meditation. There's very estimates of how many decisions we make a day, anywhere from 20,000 to 5,000 to 20,000 decisions a day. And so that's some of the research that's been done. So what kind of choices do we make? Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, you know the very essence of character development. Essence is the very way of choosing the decisions that we make. Are we choosing under the umbrella of God's commandments and judgments? Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, Therefore, choose life that both you and descendants may live, that you may love the eternal your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him. For he is your life and the length of your days, that you may dwell in the land which the eternal swore unto your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. So God tells us to choose life. We are free moral agents, and that's what the world doesn't understand in terms of the problems of this world. Mr. Armstrong defined character in the Mystery Ages of the book on page 69. The supreme creative accomplishment. So God has created a vast universe, but what is His greatest creation? Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. The word workmanship in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 10 is poema, and it can be translated masterpiece or work of art. You and I are God's work of art, but we have to cooperate because the gift of faith, the gift of grace or God's favor is a gift. But we have our part in it. So Mr. Armstrong writes, God assigns angels responsibilities, but God created within them minds with power to think, to reason, to make choices and decisions. But there was one super important quality that even God's creative powers could not create instantly by fiat. The same perfect, holy, righteous character inherent in both God and the Word. This kind of character must be developed by the choice and the intent of the one in whom it comes to exist. So are we making the right choices every day? That's why we pray that God will lead us by His Spirit. So it says in, um, where is that? For as many as are led by His Spirit 
are the sons or the children of God. I think that's in Romans 8.14. As many are led by the Spirit of God are God's children. So pray. I hope you do. Pray that you can be led by God's Spirit every day. And God brings to my mind some things I've forgotten that I need to think, oh, what what do I need to do today? And I've forgotten something. God brings it to my mind. Ask God to lead you by your Spirit. By His Spirit. And, of course, that means the fruits of God's Spirit. Galatians 5 and verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So we need to be radiating the fruits of God's Holy Spirit and develop godly character. So let's go and grow in godly character. Who do you know in God's church that had godly character? Well, I think Mr. Herbert Armstrong and his wife were a good example of that. Dr. Meredith is one of the saints. I have um, Deborah Lincoln Strange is uh, executive secretary for Dr. Douglas Winnale, and she and I try to keep track of the death, deaths of elders and their wives. And I'll read the listing starting with uh, May 18, 2017. We call them the saints, the list of the saints. On May 18, 2017, Dr. Roderick C. Meredith died, age 86, as presiding evangelist. June 30, 2017, Mal Jennings, age 72, area pastor of Perth, Australia. August 1, 2017, Ron McGowan, age 79, from Houston. September 8, 2018, Roy Munger, age 91, from Knoxville. September 10, 2017, Terrence uh, Grave, uh, age 82, and uh, he was in the Seattle-Tacoma area. October 22, 2017, uh, Jove Jean-Pierre, age 72, our only elder in in Haiti. October 29, 2017, Gary Ulrich, age 85. I think he's in Canada. October 29, 2017, Alvina Dellinger, age 79, wife of local elder George Dellinger. June 7, 2018, Mickey Mayu, age 64. July 24, 2018, Jerry Clevenger, age 70, in Statesville, North Carolina. August 4, 2018, Donna Wolfley, age 77, wife of associate pastor Irvin Wolfley. February 1, 2019, Shirley Apartian, age 83, widow of evangelist Debar Apartian. May 7, 2019, Rod King, age 69. In October 2019, George Delaney from Winchester, Virginia. So these are saints of God, and they were examples of faith. (coughs) So number four, we need to grow in godly character. And these men and women have shown their proven character. As it tells us in Hebrews 11:13, which I think we read either today or last Sabbath, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, 
but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Number five, number four, godly kings grow in godly character and are faithful to the end. Number five, godly kings know their mission. And we know the sevenfold mission that Dr. Meredith outlined for us. And Jesus gave us the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 19 and, and 20. In verse 18, he says, All power in heaven and earth is given unto me. Therefore, preach the word gospel to the world and make disciples of all nations and teach them whatsoever I have taught you. And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. In Mark 16:15, go into all the world and preach the gospel unto every creature. So we know our mission is to go to all the world and preach the gospel. And hopefully that we have that same passion, the passion to witness to the world. Because it tells us in Matthew 24, 14, that this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world unto all the nations as a witness, and then the end will come. So let's have the same attitude that Jesus did as preparing for the characteristics of kings to know our mission. As Jesus said in Matthew and John 4.34, My food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Let's turn to Philippians, the third chapter, Philippians 3, in closing. Philippians 3. So God has called us to kings, priests, and judges. We've talked about five characteristics of kings. We need to grow in those characteristics. As it says in Philippians 3 and verse 12. Philippians 3 verse 12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ has also laid hold of me. Verse 14. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if anything would you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. We need the same, have the mind of Christ, and he says in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord, always, and again I say rejoice. So, brethren, God has called us to develop the qualities of kings and priests and judges. Number one, godly kings are in training have vision. Number two, godly kings care for their subjects. Number three, godly kings exercise godly judgment. Number four, godly kings grow in godly character. And number five, godly kings know their mission. Take time to pray. Take time to review your notes. Take time to serve. And thank God for his awesome gifts, including the annual festivals. So let's fulfill our glorious calling and grow in the character of godly kings.